You're listening to Learner, an audiobook by Trevor Reagan from thelearnerlab.com. Chapter 13, Finding Opportunities Within a Challenge. Let's recap. We said our goal is to become better learners. We do that by spending time in the jungle, spending time taking action outside of our comfort zone. Then we talked about different things we can do to help us do that. First, we need to build a growth mindset, the belief we can grow. Second, we need to understand fear and tough emotions and how to put those things in their place, how to reinterpret these emotions. Those are two things that can help us jungle tiger more. The third and final sort of fundamental thing we need to get good at is finding opportunities within the challenges we face. The truth is, you know and I know, we don't have much control over the challenges we face or exactly the things that happen to us in life. But what we can control is how we interpret these challenges, which affects what we get from them. I guess we can add a layer to that. Like, yes, there are some challenges in life that come at us unexpectedly. But if we're being great learners, sometimes we're facing challenges on purpose. We're finding ways to seek out challenges. Either way, this tool is going to be really beneficial. In really any situation, challenge, setback, big or small, there are opportunities to grow. But what really dictates our capacity to find these opportunities is our perceptions, the way we think about the challenges and situations and setbacks that we're in. There are dozens of ways to perceive or frame a situation, but three big ones for this conversation. We can frame something as meaningless, pointless. This doesn't matter. There's no value in it. We can frame something as a threat. Basically, this situation is going to make me worse off than I am now. Or we could frame something as an opportunity. Something in this situation can help me grow. And when you look at it from that lens, you see, yeah, our perceptions definitely affect what we get from a situation. This happens in like everything we do. I know that this happens at my workshops. You can see in someone's face when they're framing it as meaningless, pointless. I don't need this. This doesn't matter. I already know this. You can also see in someone's face when they're framing it as more of a threat. Who's this young guy telling me to change everything I do? And you can see in someone's face when they're framing this and perceiving this as more of an opportunity. Maybe this guy will say something that could help me grow. The way they perceive the presentation certainly impacts what they get. Now, it doesn't change the presentation itself. Either way, the people are in the room with me for five hours. But the way they perceive it impacts what they get from the five hours. We don't have much control over the situation. We can control what we get out of it by changing the way we perceive it. Let's zoom out and connect some dots for a second. So we said you can perceive something as sort of meaningless, pointless, as a threat or an opportunity. All of the things we've discussed so far in the book are affecting our perceptions of challenges and setbacks and situations. How would our fixed mindset lead us to perceive a situation? Meaningless, pointless, threat, opportunity. Well, most likely meaningless, pointless, because remember the fixed mindset is I can't or don't have to grow. If I'm operating from that mindset, I don't really believe in my capacity to change, so I don't really see the value of the challenge, the setback, the situation, because I think I'm stuck. What about the lizard brain? How is that going to lead us to perceive a situation? Yeah, threat. When the lizard is at the wheel, just like we discussed, every 
problem, challenge, obstacle, or change is really perceived as a threat. This problem, challenge, obstacle, or change is going to make me worse off than I am now. What we're really trying to do is kind of get to this learner mode where we're looking for opportunities within the challenge and situation, building a growth mindset, and understanding our tough emotions. These really help us do that more. So all three of these fundamental tools, there's a synergy between them. Each one empowers the next. In the introduction of the book, I talked about my journey trying to make the Duke basketball team. Obviously, I fell short, but if you think about it, I kind of landed in a really interesting place. For two years, I had a backstage pass to the best college basketball program arguably ever. I was there at every single practice, sitting right behind the bench during games. I got to travel with the team. I got to sit in on meetings and see the way the coaches broke down film and how they approached building this program. And playing against another outstanding player makes you better. Hundreds of opportunities that people would kill to get to experience. But I'll be honest, I didn't get much out of it at all. I was kind of in both meaningless and threat mode, where I felt so attacked and angry that I didn't make the team. Like people are judging me. I'm not good enough. Really perceiving getting cut as a threat. And therefore, I didn't really see or appreciate the opportunities before me. This doesn't matter. I didn't make the team. I failed. So what's the point? So for two years, I kind of flopped around, went through the motions. Was it enjoyable and fun? Yeah. Did I develop as many relationships as I could have? No. Did I learn as much as I could have? Absolutely not. And in one way or the other, all of that funnels down to the way I was thinking about the situation. February 2017, I convinced some of the coolest people I knew to come out to my apartment in LA. I called it the Weekend Hackathon. The original idea was that would be the springboard for this book. We had the Dream Team cast. We had Karch Karai there, the head coach of the USA Olympic women's volleyball team. We had Courtney Thompson, who at the time was one of the setters for the Olympic volleyball team. We had my friend from the Bay Area, Sean Puri, who's sort of an expert in the startup technology world. One guest wasn't really as, I guess, well-known or famous as the others, but I was so excited that he could join. His name was William. FYI, that's not his real name. We changed it to protect his privacy. William and I connected during a workshop inside of a prison about a year and a half prior. Did this workshop with a group of about 50 guys. William and I really connected before, during, and after the workshop. We stayed in touch via email for a few months. And a couple months before this hackathon project, he was released from prison. So he was kind of number one on my list as far as people I wanted to learn from, people that I wanted to be involved in this book, this project. So we're in LA in my apartment, and it's like the dream team of people all sitting around in my living room. This is how you learn. This is why we avoid it. And then the third step is like overcoming that resistance. And that's where growth mindset comes in. I think some of the most powerful lessons and biggest takeaways for everyone in the room came from William. On the second day, William started to open up and share his story, his experience. He said, I was in prison for almost 20 years. And for the first 15, 
I was struggling. I was miserable because all I could think about is how terrible the environment was, how much I hated being here. I can't even begin to imagine how tough that would be, to be honest. Like, I'll never understand. But then he goes, with like five years left in my sentence, I decided I was no longer in prison. I was in college. Listen to this. I have the clip. So I took advantage of that and I read, worked out, uh, meditated. I just took advantage of having all of that time on my hand to do something different. So I wasn't incarcerated. I was in college. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I, physically, I'm here, but mentally, I'm not. Think about once those doors open, what are you going to do and start preparing for that right, right now? So he starts just devouring books. He starts sharing what he was learning from these books with other guys on the inside. He helped organize the, the program, the group, that read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. They read her book, reached out to her. She doesn't really do in-person workshops now, but she sent them to me. He was the reason I got to go do this workshop. Now that he's out, he's doing incredible things. He set up his own website. He's working with other people in tough situations. He's even creating content to provide to other people on the inside to help them get out and stay out. One of the most incredible people I've ever met. One of the best learners I will ever know doing amazing work. And all of these things in one way or the other are a byproduct of him changing how he perceived his situation. In framing those last few years as I'm in college, did he change the environment he was in? No. Did he make every day just fun and easy and light and enjoyable? No. Did he change what he got from the situation? Yes. One thing that we have to be clear on with this topic, this is not blind or fake or forced optimism where we ignore the difficulty, ignore the problems, or minimize our feelings within the challenge. It's the opposite of that. This is sort of being willing to accept the difficult situations, the things that are out of our hands, and all of the tough emotions that those situations can create, and at the same time, looking for the opportunities to grow and get better. This doesn't necessarily make it easy, but it certainly changes what we get from the situations we're in. So compare and contrast William's story with my story at Duke. In my situation, the opportunities were glaringly obvious, but I didn't really extract any of them because of how I was perceiving the situation. On the other hand, William was in a much tougher environment facing bigger challenges where the opportunities weren't so glaring and obvious, but he was able to find them and grow from them because of his mindset, because of how he perceived the situation he was in. There's opportunities to grow in almost any situation. Our mindset and the way we think about the situations can either help or hurt our capacity to find those opportunities. Back to my hackathon LA apartment story. I mean, I love the jungle Later on in the second day, Courtney Thompson, again, she was one of the setters for the U.S. Olympic women's volleyball team. She starts to open up and share her experiences about competing at the Olympic level. Halfway through her story, she turned to William and goes, William, do you think we're a bunch of ass? Like we're sitting here talking about winning and losing volleyball matches or serving it into the net, and you're talking about your experience in prison. William's response stuck with everyone in the room. He goes, I don't think you're assholes, because the truth is this. People are people. 
pain is pain, stories are stories. The tools that you would use to move through a losing streak are the same tools I need to use in dealing with big obstacles. Maintain my growth mindset. I am not stuck. I can grow. I need to be willing to feel uncomfortable and accept these tough emotions during that process, and I need to find opportunities to grow within the challenges I face. Now, it might be more difficult for me to use those tools, but the tools are the tools. That simple response created the entire foundation and outline for the book you're listening to right now. And then he goes deeper. He goes, the one thing I'd recommend, though, is that people upgrade their language around stuff like this. I was guilty of this before I met William. I used to go around to groups and tell them, love the struggle, love the challenges, love the mistakes. Love is a great word, but not for situations like this. Like you can't go into a workshop inside of a prison and be like, love all these opportunities. No, absolutely not. So William goes, the better word to use for stuff like this is appreciate. I can appreciate that there are opportunities to grow within a challenge. I don't have to love the challenge itself. That is so powerful. So many times when people talk about resilience and setbacks and adversity, we sort of sugarcoat it with words like love. This minimizes the difficulty, minimizes the problem, and denies our true emotions. I think in these scenarios, William was absolutely correct. Appreciate is a better word. So let's get some reps on this. Let's take a minute to do a little brainstorm, little exercise. Pause for a second and think about some of the challenges you're currently facing. You can write them down if you want. Now on the other side of the piece of paper, write down a few opportunities within those challenges. Now, something that we have to be clear on, this is not this fake optimistic brainstorm strategy that a lot of people use. And in fact, I used to use in the past where it's write down your challenges and then on the other side of the paper, write down what you're grateful for. Of course, there's nothing wrong with gratitude in the right time and place. It's problematic though, when we're using it to deny our emotions or minimize the problems we face. Because in that exercise, of course, we could all write down our challenges and then we could write down all sorts of things we're grateful for. My dog, my family, my home. Always look at the bright side of your life. And obviously those are all great things, but it's not really helping me deal with the specific challenge or problem I face. So again, this is different. Identify some challenges and the opportunities within them. A simple question to help you maybe find these opportunities is, what can I learn from this or what can this teach me? Jack, Hit them with the brainstorm music. We actually did that same exercise with a Division I college football team. And at the end of the brainstorm, we had some people get up and share. One player gets up and you can tell he's kind of shook, like his eyes are red You could see it. This is really affecting him. And he goes, the biggest challenge I'm facing right now is that I just experienced a season ending injury. This player is in his fourth year. So this is his last season. He'll never play football again. He's not going to go to the NFL. His football career is over. 
But then he was able to rattle off like four big lessons this is teaching him. He said, I'm learning how to be a leader on the sideline, how to help my teammates when I cannot be on the field with them. He said, I'm learning that there's more to life than just sports. I'm trying to figure out who I am and what I'm going to be about moving forward. Now, let's be clear here and live in reality. Just because he writes those things down, does that really make this situation easier? Of course not. It's going to be really difficult standing on the sidelines watching his teammates compete. But because he was able to write those things down, he can appreciate them, become more aware of them. And our argument is he will extract more from this situation than if he was just operating in fixed mindset or threat mode. So like I said at the jump, what we're trying to build is this skill of resilience, dealing with moving through and growing from setbacks. Resilience is a hot topic right now. How to build resilience. Here's a little yeah, something to build about resilience. How do you build any area of your life? Resilience. Ask yourself to build. I'm going to show you five things that you need to know. Resilience. 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 Building resilience. But I had a conversation with one of the world's leading experts in resilience a few weeks ago that completely changed the way I think about the topic. It ends up what the science says about resilience is almost a 180 from how most of us think and talk about it. Yes, it's important, but the way to get there is much different than you might think. Chapter 14, Turning Resilience on Its Head. Hi, hi Trevor, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Um, congrats on the book launch day. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Dr. George Bonanno. This conversation happened a couple weeks ago on the launch day of his new book, The End of Trauma. And honestly, this interview totally revamped this entire section of the book. So my name is, is George Bonanno. I'm a professor of clinical psychology at uh, Teachers College Columbia University. And what I've been interested in for years is how we uh, adapt to highly aversive, extreme aversive events, potentially traumatic events. George is humble with his sort of introduction of himself. Here's a blurb by Daniel Gilbert for uh, George's new book. Everything you know about trauma, about how human beings deal with the worst things that can possibly happen to them, is probably wrong. One book can fix that, and this is the one. The world's expert on human resilience has written a powerful, important, and fascinating book. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around resilience? And maybe another way to ask that would be, where are the gaps here of how everyone talks about this on Twitter, how society thinks about resilience, and some of the principles that you found in your work? Um, that's a great question, actually. I think the word resilience has taken on a considerable elasticity over the years, and people use it to mean all kinds of things. Sort of general understanding that bubbles up from that is that it's something in the person, that people are resilient people or not. And um, that's a pretty big misconception. It's a pretty big error, really, to think that. Resilience seems to be one of these things that we situate as independent of some people have it and some people don't. Wow. The parallels of some of the other topics we've touched on are amazing right now. <laughs> of just like uh, we we interviewed like Carol Dweck and talked about the growth oh mindset. Sure. It's, it's yeah. like this, so far this conversation is exactly the yeah. same. Carol was a colleague at Columbia 
And she and I talked a lot about these things and about collaborating together. And I just absolutely love her work. You know, basically, as you just said, if you if you assume that there's a plasticity to learning and that it's about, you know, sticking to it and, and trying and, 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 you know, adapting yourself to it, you can learn. If we take the parallel of her work on mindset, um, and if you apply it to resilience, if people assume they're resilient, and then they hit with a really bad event, and they can't cope with it very well, then they have to assume, gosh, I'm not so resilient. If one assumes one is not resilient, then when a, an extreme adverse event happens, people assume, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really in a bad bad deal here because I can't cope with this. Resilience is more of an outcome after an event occurs than a trait that we either have or we don't. And, you know, it's sort of a new ball game every time something happens. And that makes, that takes it out of the person and into the actual moment in time, which I think is much more um, the way the world works. So now the question is, well, what are the things we can do to position ourselves to have a higher likelihood of a resilient outcome. This is where things start to get interesting. There's a lot of research on the characteristics of resilience. And I've done some of this research early on in my career when before we quite worked it out. And I've, you know, troubled over this, I've puzzled over this for years. We can largely, as we identify people who showed a resilient outcome after, a, you know, a potentially traumatic event, a loss, you know, a, a nasty thing that happened to them. And then we look at the correlates of that sort of went along with that, that pattern, with that trajectory of good outcomes. If we get about 70 different factors, including like all kinds of things that I didn't even know about before, that's in the blood or in the biological factors, different psychological factors. But then um, as my work progressed, I began to notice that the, the, the effects were pretty small. If we actually have a lot of these factors and add them up, we don't do a very good job of still predicting who will be resilient and who not. And the, the, and the effects that the actual amount of sort of the puzzle we explain is pretty small. Whoa, that's kind of different than how most people talk about resilience. You see all over Twitter, you see people selling courses of this is how to be resilient. This is the key thing to build to become resilient. This is problematic for a lot of reasons. First, it's implying like resilience is this thing that you don't have, but if you come to me, then you can have it. And it's also making it seem like a step-by-step process of these are the magic tools that can help you be resilient. But what George and many other researchers in the field have shown is actually more times than not, we're going to experience a resilient outcome. That even when really, really, really bad things happen, more times than not, we experience the resilience trajectory. And they also have shown that there is not a secret formula or one trait or one behavior that predicts resilience. There are so many different variables that play a role in this, but none of them do a good job of actually predicting resilience. And a big reason for this is, look, every challenge we face is different in many ways. It's context-dependent. Sometimes a certain tool will work and other times it's not appropriate. It's more about finding the right tool in the right context in the right time. We, we only use these things some of the time or if we, they're only effective some of the time because they don't always fit the situation we're in because every situation is new. And that led me to realize this other work I was doing in flexibility. 
And I had been doing the research on flexibility for a long time, 15 years, and I'd never quite realized how they fit together. When I began to see how they fit together, I wanted to write the book. In a sense, is a way to work that out. And it was a long haul. It took me a couple of years to write this book. But what I began to realize is, though, that flexibility is exactly as you described. It is about sort of looking at this moment in particular. If our goal is a resilient outcome, that process is going to require a lot of trial and error, experimenting with different tools and approaches to help us get there. When we focus on flexibility, we're positioning ourselves for that process of trial and error on the pursuit of a resilient outcome. If we want to increase our likelihood of a resilient outcome, we should focus on flexibility. Now here's where things get really interesting. The next question I asked George is the same one that you're thinking about now, which is, well, how do you build flexibility? Like, how do you create that foundation? And I, I, I suggested there were three parts of that. Optimism being one, like having confidence, coping ability, and focusing on the challenge. There's what that's called challenge orientation. And there's lots of good research on all three of these things. And this is where, what, where we get interesting about optimism. Optimism isn't about saying there's no, no problem here. Optimism is about saying, I mean, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Maybe I won't be rid of this problem, but the future will still be okay. You, you kind of put that together with the sense of, and I'm good at coping with things. And then there's also the third piece of challenge orientation, which is like, what's the, what do I have to do here? Not how bad it is, how bad it is, how bad it is, how bad it is. Oh my God, it's so bad. That's a threat orientation. After that, it's really, we need to shift and focus on the problem. So these three things work kind of synergistically in a, in a way. And they, what I like to say is they get us into the game. Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! That was the sound of my brain exploding. Let me explain why. Optimism, confidence in our coping abilities, and challenge orientation. Okay, maybe on the surface this doesn't seem like much, but if you dig into those terms... These align perfectly with everything we've talked about in this book. Optimism and confidence in our ability to cope are directly related to growth mindset and understanding fear. When we believe in our capacity to grow, we're more likely to be optimistic, not ignoring the problem, but we believe in our capacity to grow and build skills that might help us deal with the situation. And this makes us more confident in our ability to deal with the challenge. And if you flip the script and look at it from the fixed mindset perspective, if I don't believe in my capacity to grow, I'm probably not going to be that optimistic and I'm probably not going to have much confidence in my ability to cope because I can't grow. I have the skills I have and can't really change. And think about how the fear and tough emotion piece fits into this. I'm faced with a challenge or setback. This creates a lot of tough emotions. If I assume that feeling these things is a sign of weakness, that's going to hurt my confidence and hurt my optimism. And when I'm able to reinterpret these tough emotions and sort of put them in their place, I realize when I feel them during a challenge or setback, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not being resilient, that I'm doing something wrong. That's the human response to tough situations. And challenge orientation is the perception or mindset that we are able to frame setbacks and obstacles as challenges rather than threats. And that aligns with the lessons that William taught us. Just a few minutes ago, we showed how growth mindset and reinterpreting our tough emotions 
helps us find these opportunities within a challenge, which means those two fundamental building blocks also help us enter a more challenge orientation. Do you see how all these dots are connecting? Yeah, so far, we've been talking about learning, and we've established our building blocks. We need to get good at building a growth mindset, the belief we could grow. We need to get good at reinterpreting our tough emotions, and we need to get good at finding opportunities within a challenge. Those tools will position us to be more flexible, and being more flexible gives us a better chance of resilient outcomes. All right, let's keep going with this. Now let's look at how these building blocks work together in the real world. Chapter 15, Learning Like a Scientist. What you want to do is reduce the cost to space, no matter what. $330 billion a year is spent on space. Space exploration is really expensive, obviously, for a lot of reasons. But one big one is we only use rockets like once. We build a rocket, we build a booster, we launch it into space, we send the satellites and supplies up, and then we blow up the booster. This is problematic because for every launch, you have to build a new rocket. This takes a lot of time and a lot of money. So a few years ago, a company called SpaceX decided to try to fix this. Their solution was simple. What if we could build a reusable rocket? One we could launch into space, we send the supplies up, but then we can land it back on Earth and it's ready to go again. Uh, so, so obviously if we can reuse the rocket, uh, it would allow for about a hundredfold reduction in, in, in launch costs. And, and this, this is a pretty obvious thing if you think about it as applied to any other mode of transport. Um, you can imagine that if, if planes were not reusable, uh, very few people would fly. This wasn't necessarily an original idea. But most people had concluded that it was sort of an impossible idea. This has been attempted many times in the past, and, and generally what's happened is when people have concluded that success was not one of the possible outcomes, then the, the project's been abandoned. Now, we, we, we could fail. Uh, I'm not saying we, we're certain of success here, uh, but, but we're going to try to do it. What do you think they uh, did a lot of in pursuing this goal? Yeah, they crashed a lot of rockets. Well, now we have the latest on SpaceX have, and uh, unmanned rockets slamming the into the ground the on landing and exploding into a massive fireball there during was a some test type of flight. anomaly during first stage flight. Overnight, a massive explosion. SpaceX the unmanned mission and this starship SpaceX was able to recover the booster and says it will use the data to improve future flights. These crashes took place over the course of a few years. So let's kind of break down the process. When the rocket crashes, what happens next? They collect the data. They figure out what went right, what went wrong. They go back to the drawing board, build another rocket, and launch again. This process of launch, crash, learn, fix, launch is sort of fueled by these fundamental tools that we've outlined so far in the book. Do you think they believe they can grow? Yeah, they definitely have a growth mindset towards this mission. There are no guarantees, but we believe we can figure this out. So that belief is fueling this action. Are they willing to feel tough emotions? Oh, yeah. 
They're feeling them. And just because they go back to the drawing board and start to work on another rocket doesn't necessarily mean the pain, the tough emotions, the stress goes away. This is a good example of dancing with those tough emotions, feeling but doing. And when the rocket crashes, how are they perceiving that situation? Pointless, threat, opportunity. Well, definitely an opportunity. That's like this whole premise of learning like a scientist is when the experiment fails, when the rocket crashes, they see that as sort of a form of feedback. Of course, it's not fun when it crashes, but within every crash are hundreds of opportunities, hundreds of data points that can help them learn and help them improve their chances for the next launch. Every crash is perceived as an opportunity. In George Bonanno's new book, The End of Trauma, he talks about this, what he calls flexibility sequence. And it's exactly this process. It's, okay, what is happening or what happened? What is an experiment or strategy or tool I can try? I try it and then I reflect what worked, what didn't. I fix what I can and try again. And his argument is, and what the evidence shows is, it's through that trial and error process you begin to find tools that work to give you a better chance of a resilient outcome, to help you grow, to help you get better. Learning like a scientist through experimentation and trial and error is flexibility at play. So in going through this process for years and years and years, finally, this happened. The crowd is super excited here at SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California. rocket itself is a reusable rocket. This is the third time that that Falcon 9 has been used. There were a lot of crashes in the beginning that were covered by a lot of us in the media. There, were, there was a lot of speculation. There were a lot of doubts. And yet we have gotten to this moment where we're now putting civilians in space. We've gotten to the moment where we're having successful launches into space. Um, it seems like the pace is picking up, Leroy. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, in any development program, a rocket development program, you're going to have mishaps. You're going to have explosions. Uh, I don't even I think we all kind of lost count on how many first stages uh, toppled over or exploded. And now they're doing it very routinely. I can't remember the last time that one uh, was not successfully recovered. And so that's just how these things go. And so we've had uh, pretty much 100 percent success. And it's a, it's a great milestone. It's, it's, it really shows you the robustness of the system. I know that naming this chapter, learn like a scientist, and then doubling down and saying, essentially learn like a rocket scientist, makes it seem kind of big and daunting. But if you think about it, that process that they just went through is the same process that the skateboarder went through. The skateboarder that we talked about at the beginning of this book. Now, of course, one took a decade 
and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the other took a, a couple hours and was free, but the process was the same. We try, we crash, we learn, we try again. That's learning in a nutshell. Chapter 16, Into the Wild. I think there's also some unexpected benefits to this learn like a scientist approach. One is we start to separate ourselves out from the outcomes. Scientists take their outcomes seriously, but not personally. When the rocket crashes, they don't feel like, oh, I am a failure as a person. No, they know that the failure was in the rocket. The failure was in the experiment. And I know that seems like a simple distinction, but there's a lot of power underneath it. Brene Brown says there's a big difference between I am a mistake versus I made a mistake. I am a mistake is taking it personally. I am a failure. I am not enough. I made a mistake is fixable. I made a mistake or there was an error in the rocket sort of creates some space between us and our outcomes and allows us to get to work. One of my favorite writers, Tim Urban, talked about this in a blog post a few years back. He says there's a big difference between learning like a scientist and feeling like you are the experiment. When you're the scientist, you're running experiments and you're trying to get feedback on a particular hypothesis. I think this tool will work. Let's run an experiment and see what happens. When you feel like you're the experiment, that's when we're taking our outcomes personally. I passed. I failed. I'm not enough. And when we're so zoomed in like that and sort of attached to an outcome, it's really, really hard to go through enough iterations, enough trial and error to find a solution. So baked into this framework of learn like a scientist is this idea of I am running experiments. I am not the experiment. We've taught this to younger students and seen that result. There's so many times in school uh, we get a bad grade on a math test. We fail a math test. It's really easy to take that personally. I am a failure. I am dumb. I am not a math person. This creates fixed mindset stories. This creates tough emotions. Sometimes we just sort of write it off as like, math is not my thing. Sometimes we'll blame it on the teacher to make ourselves feel better. All these strategies are human nature and they make sense, but not much growth or learning is happening when we do those things. When we teach the student to learn like a scientist, they know, okay, I failed a math test. I get a bad grade on my math test. I am not a failure. My rocket crashed. In treating this like a scientist and taking a step back and saying, okay, That test was an experiment. It didn't go like I planned. But why? Why did the rocket crash? Was it because I didn't study? I studied the wrong thing. I misinterpreted the instructions. I messed up one particular equation. Asking those questions is putting me on a pathway to learn from the outcome. And that's a much more effective approach than just taking it personally and assuming I am not enough. Easy to say, but hard to do. But when we teach people to learn like a scientist, that is a framework that makes a ton of sense. This can help people learn to cook. Let's say I'm starting from scratch. Break it down. Cooking a dish is a skill, and it's probably going to take a few reps, a few attempts to nail it. So this is going to require some crashing. So many times, though, after the first crash, we give up and go, yep, it's just not me. I can't do this. 
If we approach it like a scientist, if we're allowing these fundamental tools to fuel this flexibility sequence, it would look a little different. The first dish is a disaster. Why is it raw on the bottom? Well, it's medium rare. Yeah. You need to clean your glasses. It's raw. Okay, I'm maintaining my growth mindset. I believe I can figure this out. I know that because this requires some trial and error and some failures and mistakes, it's going to create tough emotions. When I feel these tough emotions, I know that's normal. It's not because I'm doing something wrong. And then we put on the scientist hat. Okay, this dish didn't work, but why? Was I missing an ingredient? Did I add too much of one thing or the other? Why did the rocket crash? And in asking that question, I'm finding the opportunity within the undesirable outcome. That gives me something to fix, and I try again. Flexibility, trial and error, fueled by the three fundamental tools. Belief, feeling, finding opportunities within a challenge. When our actions directly influence an outcome, like when we're cooking or launching rockets, it's okay to ask the question, why did it crash? Why does this dish taste terrible? But sometimes though, this why did this happen question is not appropriate. I learned that the hard way. On May 24th, 2019, I found out I had bladder cancer, which was a huge shock, like even for my doctor. It ends up bladder cancer is most common in people that are older, overweight, and smoke. And I'm none of those things. Obviously, this was really, really scary news that just came out of left field. So far, things are working out, and I've been honestly pretty lucky. We caught it early, they were able to remove the tumor, and every six to eight months I go back for a scan and so far they've all been clear. In going through this experience, I had all of these tools at my disposal. I was aware of most of this research during this journey, but that didn't make it a smooth or easy ride at all. These tools are useful, but it's really, really hard to apply them, especially when something like this happens. Through the first couple months especially, I was like beating my head against the wall, trying to learn from the situation through asking the question, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, I eat a healthy diet. I don't smoke. And I'm not 65. They even tested my genes. And the truth is, we are never going to know why it happened. There's no way of knowing. And continuing to ask that question is really going to lead me nowhere. And through a lot of trial and error and really good conversations with my therapist, I was able to shift from why did this happen to asking a better question. What can I learn from this? And that question helped me get on a different path where I was more focused on things that I can control, my response, the bigger lessons that I'm learning from this challenge versus trying to find an answer that doesn't exist. Looking back, I could list hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that I've learned from this experience. Does that mean I love this? Absolutely not. That goes right back to what William taught us. We can appreciate the opportunities to grow. We don't have to love the situation itself. William was one of the first people I called when I got this news, and he's helped me so much through this experience. The other thing I want to be clear on is We're talking a lot about how our growth mindset, the belief we could grow, helps kind of build optimism. Like, yes, I can grow. I'm not stuck. Well, the truth is, sometimes a lot of the situation is fixed. Like, I had bladder cancer, and no matter what my mindset was, 
that's present. So a growth mindset in that situation is, I believe I as a person can grow and build skills that might help me deal with this situation that is kind of permanent. The best example of this, and maybe the best example of learning in a tough situation I've ever seen, happened in a workshop in West Virginia a few years ago. So I'm in a state penitentiary in West Virginia, and I went through my two and a half hour workshop with a group of like 150 guys on the inside. The workshop went well, a lot of good questions at the end. I'm packing up my stuff and a group of eight guys come up to me and they go, hey, we really like that conversation. Is there any way you could stay a bit longer and help us out with some things? So we go to this room and they tell me about all these projects they're working on. First, they said, hey, we're in charge of the library here. Like, what books do you think would be good to add to it? They told me about how they ran a Shark Tank competition where people got to pitch their business ideas, ideas they could actually use when they're released. They talked about how they're creating actual training programs where people can learn concrete skills that they can use once they're out. And they were asking me about different ways they could use sort of this content to make those courses and trainings more effective. It was a really energizing and engaging brainstorm, and they were so excited to find ways to create a better learning environment for the people within those walls. So it's time for me to go. A guard comes and escorts me out. And on the walk out, he goes, hey, do you know about those eight guys? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, those eight guys are in for life, and they're never getting out. Dang. Their situation, their environment is stuck, is permanent, and will never change. But still, they're finding ways to grow and to help others get out and stay out. I think about those guys all the time. Some of the best learners I've ever seen in my life. Making a big difference with the growth mindset, the willingness to feel tough emotions, and finding the opportunities, even the smallest opportunities within the challenges they face. I know we were kind of all over the map with this segment. We talked about rocket scientists. We talked about skateboarding. We talked about cancer and prison and baking. But all of these examples have one thing in common. The pursuit of growth through a process of trial and error fueled by are three fundamental tools. The jungle tiger learns to survive in the wild by spending time in the wild. The same rules apply to us. We become better learners every time we learn by taking action that stretches us out of the comfort zone. Our beliefs and our fears rob us of that action. We overcome our beliefs by building a growth mindset. We build a growth mindset by understanding neuroplasticity. We don't overcome our fear and tough emotions but we can put them in their place by changing the way we think about them. And when we're in the jungle, facing challenges, we're able to find opportunities within them by being flexible, learning like a scientist, and through trial and error. Those are our tools. And you might feel kind of good right now. Like this is an empowering message. I feel good just reading it. But nothing changes unless we put the tools into practice. Coming up next time, how to take and sustain action. This program is brought to you by thelearnerlab.com. The book is by Trevor Reagan. This episode was produced by Jack. 
For more resources on learning, please visit our website.